I start most of my days by stepping in or cleaning up dog because that's what happens if you do hospice care, right? What I love about it, that is the humility is it doesn't matter how big I get in my head or my life. Like when your day starts with like stepping in and cleaning up dog, it brings you back to the planet really fast, which I like a lot. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, New York Times bestselling author Stephen Kotler on peak performance, even when you live in an aging body and even inside grief. Interesting applications for the science of flow states and more coming up right after this first break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Before we get started, one quick note. 
While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends. Okay, look, this episode covers a lot of stuff and it covers it very fast. Stephen Kotler kind of does everything that way in this like rapid fire, useful content mixed with some storytelling, a little swearing and some tangents thrown in. It might take a little adjusting. So I want to give you a little structure to hang on to before we get rolling. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author known widely for his work on peak performance and flow states. Peak performance at its simplest is the performance of a task at the optimum level of an individual's physical and mental capabilities, or both together. Flow states are where you're so immersed in what you're doing, it feels effortless. Like your inner critic is not yapping at you, trying to like throw things at you. There's a sense of timelessness in what you're doing, being outside of time. You're just completely immersed in what you're doing. Peak performance and flow states could be these really nebulous, amorphous terms, but once they've been broken down into repeatable, measurable parts, you can actually apply this stuff to your life and to any number of things that you care about. While Stephen focuses a lot on what some people call like extreme sports, extreme sports in, in quotation marks here, especially in his latest book, Nar Country, the principles of peak performance don't just belong to superhero bodies and superhero minds. Aging bodies maybe can't access flow states as rigorously or through the same rigorous means as younger bodies. Injured and ill bodies don't really quite match up to that extreme sport example that is often connected to peak performance ideals. But as you'll hear in this show, peak performance belongs to everybody. So whether you're interested in exploring the limits of the human body or you're trying on a creative practice or you're curious about the places in your life where you feel held back internally or externally, this stuff is still really helpful. The practice of peak performance is basically reaching for that flow state, reaching for the place where things feel like they have a lot more ease to them, where you're not fighting so much against things like self-limiting beliefs or those sneaky little thought processes that keep you from, okay, sorry to say this, those sneaky little thought processes that keep you from living your best life. I know, but it's kind of accurate though, right? Like we all have these internal narratives, sometimes conscious, sometimes not conscious that cut us off when we are reaching for the things that we most want. Yeah. Okay. Now there is something else in this episode that might surprise you. All of this work on peak performance, those million best-selling books, all that stuff, Stephen applies all of that knowledge to his work in dog rescue. Stephen and his wife, Joy, run a rescue organization focusing on dogs in need of hospice care. So not only do we talk about flow states in an aging body, we also get into grief gratitude, resilience, and the humbling nature of starting each day by picking up mountains of dog poop. This episode is a fast and furious ride through neurobiology, sports, bodies, wildfires, performance, negative mindsets, and caring for the world you're in. It's a lot. I'm curious to hear how the principles of peak performance apply to your life once you've listened to this episode. Where do you feel that flow? Or if flow feels like it's missing, where do you long for it? 
leave me a note on social or pop over to leave a review of this particular episode and let me know. All right, on to today's conversation with best-selling author and dog caregiver, Stephen Kotler. Stephen, I am so glad to have you here with me today. We've already been like chatting about cool stuff before we got rolling, but officially, hi. Hi. I'm so glad Thanks you're here. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. There's a lot of territory that I want to get into today, but I want to start with just a couple of foundational terms. I defined a whole bunch of stuff in the introduction, but can you give me just the little soundbite mini definition on flow and flow states? Because we're going to talk about that a bunch. Perfect place to start. Flow has a scientific definition. It's not very useful, but it has one, which is where we're going to start, uh, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand, so focused on what you're doing that everything else just starts to melt away and disappear. Action awareness are going to merge. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head, the inner critic gets really quiet. Time passes strangely. It slows down. You get a freeze frame effect. Many of you have been in a car crash much more frequently. We just get so sucked into what we're doing that five hours go by in what feels like five minutes. And throughout all aspects uh, of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that is a rough definition of flow. To take it one step farther, when psychologists define flow, this is an altered state of consciousness with six core phenomenological characteristics. Phenomenological is a big fancy word that says this is how the experience makes you feel. And I just listed a bunch of them. So complete concentration on the task at hand, the merger of action awareness, the vanishing of self, time dilation, uh, a sense of control, which is what peak performance feels like on the inside and euphoria. So when we measure flow, we measure how do those characteristics show up? How much, how little, because flow is a spectrum. It's micro flow to macro flow. So when those six show up and they're dialed at one or two, you go to work, you get sit down, write an uh, email to your boss. You get so sucked in that an hour goes by and you've written an essay, that's microflow. Macroflow is when all of those show up and they're turned up to 11, often feels like a mystical spiritual experience when that happens. I love that distinction because as you were talking about that, I was like, how is flow different from like the tunnel vision hyperfocus of ADD, which is like, I just spent 16 hours composing this email that no one cares about. So I like that distinction or that maybe that continuum well the other thing is flow is peak performance it tends to be useful right you mm. can get sucked in hand it's just as easily in a flow state you can and when i train writers for example how to plot discipline is what we call it it becomes like have an outline stick to your outline because especially if you're in flow tangents are delicious details are delicious and you can you can break something as much as you can you, you can make it brilliant when you're in flow if you're not called careful i like that i like that idea of the structure within which you can float around in your flow that that tangents have a structure limits are liberating and it's especially true inside a flow I love that. Limits are liberating. I love that you said that because one of the things that I want to talk with you about today, like your your new book is about performance aging and all of these sort of, I know you don't mean it like this, but like these glorious ideals of what's possible in the human body and the human mind and apply these principles and everything is going to be awesome. And that is a lot of what you talk about on one hand. And then when you sort of dig 
beneath the surface of that and you look at also the other things that you've done in your life, which we're definitely going to get into, but like limitation is part of this. Being able to explore what's possible within limitation is sort of flow. All human beings are hardwired for peak performance because we can all get into flow. In fact, most mammals can get into flow. So peak performance is a, is a part of the, it's our birthright. That said, at any moment of any day, we are all facing limits and challenges. And like, it doesn't, that, that stuff, they may change. Some people may have it worse today than others, but it's hard here. It's hard for everyone. And there's always challenges and opportunities, right? And flow can happen despite that, right? Like that's the really cool thing about flow is it shows up in everyone, everywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met and it doesn't change over time. This is one of the things that we know about flow. This is some of the last work. The godfather of flow psychology is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He was a psychologist at the University of Chicago for a long time and then moved to uh, Drucker in the and in Claremont and uh, his last study, we passed away during COVID. His very last study was on flow proneness in the second half of our life. He wanted to know, do we crave flow up until the end? And it, he, what he discovered is that we crave flow up until our bodies deteriorate to the point that we can't access flow the way we want to. So a lot of peak performance aging work is one, how do we continue to access flow late in life? And two, how do we protect against the physical decline to protect that as well? Is that the teacher that you said you called him up and he said, as you age, have as many gateways into flow as possible? Yeah, he was, was the last conversation I had with Mike. He always asked me to call him Mike. And uh, yeah, I, I called him to ask him a question about the role action sports had played in his life and his career because there's all this a whole bunch of anecdotal data that he was a much more serious. Everybody knows he was a rock climber because he did work on rock climbing, but there was a lot of anecdotal data that like he was a lot more serious about it than he'd ever let on. And I'd called him to ask him about it and the role flow played in his life and the role action sports played in his life and specifically climbing and mountaineering. And he paused for a really long time. Like two minutes went by and I was like, Oh my God, did I offend him? What did I do? And finally says, Stephen, you got to be careful. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought he had lost the plot. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> Like, I, 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 we, right? what's going on? And I said, what do you mean, Mike? And he said, well, you got to be careful. You do something your entire life for flow and you get to be my age and forget about climbing rocks. Some days I can't get out of bed, have a backup plan. You got to be careful. And I had been working in and around peak performance aging I don't know, for 20 years, because there's like nine different things that fold into peak performance aging. And I've been working in all of those fields for literally 20 years, but it didn't come together into like a one. Once Mike said that, that was sort of the quest that started in our country and, and led to the quest that was that underlied that book. Yeah. There's something in there about how do you globalize so much of the, so much of sort of the top level soundbite work of both flow and peak performance and all of these things like the the poster child of that is like all of these action sports and all of this really physical stuff and i love that in our country obviously your 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 vehicle is park skiing which is a very physical <laughs> physically demanding action sport but the question is how do i take stock of the reality of what is. I don't have the body of a 20-year-old anymore. There are other things that draw me. There are other things that pull me. 
is what I've believed in for so long, how does it apply to who I am now and what I know about myself now? It's like that looking for the third option between um, what you call the basically like the mindset of like, what did you call it? The the mindset of aging is the slow, long rot. The long, right? slow rot. Yeah. Or so. The long, slow rot or the opposite end of that or the you know the flip side of that is like nah 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 the body is an illusion aging is an illusion limits are an illusion just like believe in yourself and you can do it like that's my problem very often with positive psychology is that it bypasses the reality of limitation and gives people an unattainable ideal and what i like about especially in our country and some of the other things i've read of yours is there's a third option here where we can acknowledge limitation in whatever form that takes, and challenge ourselves to wonder about what else is possible. And then in our country, you have like sort of operationalized how do we how do we wonder about what's possible and push ourselves. Let's go back to something you were talking about, which is the long slow rot theory. This is the traditional theory of aging, right? And it sort of gets set up. Freud makes an offhanded comment in 1907. He puts it a comment in uh, psychology. In psychotherapy, his book Psychotherapy, and uh, that's sort of where it really gets formalized. And by like 1995, all we've done is proof right, right, right. We've got we've figured out that all of our mental skills decline over time, all our physical skills decline over time, and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And this is the this is Freud is such a wanker. Can we just pause and say that Freud is such a jerk? Anyway, got a lot wrong. Got a lot right though. (laughs) Also, like. He, he did. There's a there, you. The thing you have to appreciate about Freud and the thing that nobody gives him credit for, and you have to understand that the, the unconscious wasn't a thing. We grew up in a world knowing there was an unconscious, right? Imagine having to discover the unconscious. Imagine having to, in like we're coming out of the Enlightenment, rational materialism is the pinnacle of thinking, and suddenly you're going to prove. And, and there's there's a, there's an amazing book called the history of the unconscious, where it's literally a 300 year road to get to Freud. That's amazing. All right, I'll I'll be set this point. So the long slow route theory is the traditional idea of aging. Starting in 1995, 96, data starts showing up that says, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong, really wrong. Where we are today, 30 years after the data started showing up is we now know that every single thing we used to think declined over time, they're all use it or lose it skills. So if you never stop using these skills, you can hang on to them and even advance them far later in life than anybody thought possible. Now, you made a statement like, I'm not 20 years old anymore. I'm 60 years old. And the, the truth of the matter is, or 50 years old, that's not really true. Like, it's just, it's like, there are, there are certain things that have changed over time for sure. But for most of the skills that you were to require for most anything you want to do, the possible exception of being like top 1% athletically in a handful of sports, you can pretty much do it. So there is, there, there's, there's no upper cap to that. But again, your point was also true. So this is in peak performance is a very well-known, well-established difference between affirmations and gratitude. Gratitude works, affirmations fail. And the question you have to ask is why? And the reason is because we come with great built-in bullshit detectors and an affirmation. If you sit there and stare in the mirror and go, I am a millionaire, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire. And your brain is looking back at you and going, dude, you work at Walmart. What the fuck? Right. 
that's demotivating. That's actually, you're going in the other direction. Gratitude. I am so happy and grateful. I'm healthy today. I'm so happy and grateful. My legs, I'm so happy and grateful. It's sunny outside. Those are all real things. And what happens is your brain goes, oh, look, things are better than I thought. And it has a real impact on the brain. To actually put it specifically, we've all heard about the negativity bias. What the negativity bias works out to in practicality is we take in on average nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that comes through. And conscious awareness, mind you, is about 160 bits of information. So if the ratio is nine to one, and we're only going to get about 160 bits to that we can focus on at once, that's a problem. And when you start doing gratitude and your brain starts going, oh, wow, there's, there's good stuff in my life. I, maybe I don't have to be so panicked. The ratio shifts to about five to one, six to one. So it's, it's better, right? That's what happens in the brain during gratitude. So there's something to be said for you can't pretend that the challenges aren't challenges, that they're not there, right? You can't do that. That's going to work against you, but nor can you use any of them. There's no, there are no excuses, period. There's no viable excuses. You're the only person standing in your way. And there are very few dreams that you can't chase down. I love that you just made gratitude, not the end point, but a tool in in my brain filter here is like you just made gratitude a tool for curiosity. <laughs> this is like the way that I imagine antidepressants work. It's like it brings your brain to a point where you are able to make decisions, right? It doesn't make everything sunny. It makes your brain come to a place where you have more agency and you have more more choices. And that's how I just heard you describe gratitude. Is it like it, it's a way to sort of combat it's a tool, the negativity for sure. bias. It's a tool. And, yeah, and it's way, a tool. So we do a lot of work with yeah. Glenn Fox as a neuroscientist at USC. And by, when I say we, I mean the Flow Research Collective, mm -hmm. right? There's about a hundred people who I, I get to work with and I lead a huge research team. And one of the people we work with is Glenn Fox, who's a neuroscientist at USC and the world's leading expert on gratitude. We did a bunch of work together. We discovered that people who have regular gratitude practices for reasons that have to do with how anxiety blocks flow are more flow prone. So if you want more flow in your life, there's a whole full toolkit. One of the tools you can reach for is gratitude. We're actually doing a study. We were going to do it last ski season and probably going to do it early next ski season. We're trying to figure out if you can use gratitude as an active intervention in a crisis situation as a way of, of calming down the nervous system versus we know over time it works, but in acute situations, there are tools, there are other tools that work better, we believe, but we don't know. And nobody's done direct comparison, so we're trying to. Do you know if they're looking at where the gratitude comes from, whether it is a person in crisis choosing to put their mind there or it's an intervention from someone else? We're gonna do it self-directed. Thank you. Yeah, we're gonna do it self-directed. I don't, I don't. Because grat like, gratitude is one of those things that gets sort of weaponized to people. Like, you just have to be grateful. Like, stop doing this. Like, don't think like that. Be grateful. Like, so in my field, right, I work in, in grief and grief related to death was where I started. And for a lot of people, like, their kid dies or their partner was killed in an accident. And somebody's like, be grateful that you still have blah, blah, blah. So this sort of external applied gratitude is so not helpful, but I love, I mean, I'm a big fan of agency and sovereignty, right? So it's really interesting to look at gratitude as a tool for when your nervous system is starting to spin out from the reality of the event, right? And what does that do for you? 
positive psychology has a number of high performance basics. This is not flow. Mm -hmm. This is what you got have to do mm. to get the body ready to even produce flow. And you got to have a regular anti-anxiety practice. And the three most mm. effective ones are gratitude, mindfulness, and exercise. And mindfulness for stress reduction, right? Breathwork is 11 minutes. You need 11 minutes of focus meditation or breathwork or do a love and kindness script or take your pick, but it's not very long. Graduate practice takes about five minutes to write down three things you're grateful for, turn one into a paragraph, blah, blah. You really just want to feel the gratitude in your system. That's what you're going for. Or 11 minutes or 20 to 40 minutes worth of exercise. And what we tell people is under normal circumstances, if you're having a, you know, if you're just, just a normal day, do one every day to tune up your nervous system because anxiety will block flow. But if you're stressed, do two. And if you're super stressed, do three. And, you know, when I'm grieving and we run a dog sanctuary and I do hospice care and we love all the dogs in our care greatly, but the, the downside of doing hospice care is they die. That's the job. And so there's a lot of grief. And I have come to believe that extreme grief is a three-day cycle, at least in me, that like the madness, the like, I can't be trusted to make good decisions portion of it. Most of, there are occasions where it lasts a lot longer, most of the time. And you guys should know that uh, when I say we do hospice care and special needs care, my wife and I do this, we've had over 700 dogs have passed through our facility. You know, one of the things about death and grief and dying, people ask me about this. This was also the peak performance work, right? We just came out of hospice care, special needs, anti-aging medicine. So this is where some of that started. But when you've experienced that much death and, and, and death of people who you truly love, um, I know terrible things about death and grief, things that no human being should know because you don't, nobody goes through grieving 700 times if they're living a normal life. That's not like a exactly sane thing to do. So you learn really wild ass things about grief, or at least I have. And for me, one of the things I've learned is there's a three-day cycle of madness. And during those three days, I end up doing a lot of, I'll do a lot of meditation and I'll usually go for a lot of walks. I'll sometimes I'll force myself to go to the gym, but like weeping at the gym is never a great look. It tends to freak people out. So uh, sometimes I'll avoid that. But like after those three days are up where I sort of give myself a pass on whatever every day, then it's gratitude. By, like every day I'll make sure I hit all three of those, like during that recovery period, just to keep my nervous system in check. It's interesting. Like I can hear in my head people listening and saying like three days, what I hear you saying is you have become so accustomed to having your heart broken. You have become so accustomed to goodbyes that you know what you go through and familiarity gives you a chance to apply skills, apply tools, to take care of yourself, to yeah. know yourself in the ways that you understand yourself. It's not, I got three days and then I, nothing bugs me anymore. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, no, no. I just, I just mean, when I say three days, what I mean is I should not drive heavy machinery. I should not sign yeah. legal documents. <laughs> like I should, impact right, like, zone. Right? I should be really careful because I'm not like... Grief, as you know, was treat was considered a mental illness until the 20th century, right? So, like, there's a reason. Oh, still is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think it probably still right. So there's a reason. So when I say, I mean, no, the grieving process lasts as as long as it lasts, and I mean, like, there are certain certain dogs, like certain friends of mine who pass, where I mean, I can still like if I think I see that I can like burst into tears at any moment, right? Like some of this stuff never goes away, and you know that. 
But I'm literally like three days is my rule of like when I can't be trusted decision making wise. Right. I've also seen literally like early on in this work, and I write about this in Small Furry. The first time we had a string of dogs that I was like eight in a row, I literally lost my mind. I mean, like not figuratively lost my mind. I was legit crazy doing nonsense. Like grief can really drive you over the edge. It's scary because you see yourself doing stuff and you're like, I know this is not sane and, and I'm doing it anyways. In Small Furry Prayers, you you talk about sort of an ex- multiple crises overlapping, right? Like an existential crisis, a financial crisis. You had Lyme at the time, right? Uh, I was and recovering your partner from Lyme. had lupus recovering from Lyme. So like all of these things dissolving. So I've always said this. I say this in, my, in West of Jesus. I am a person will follow an idea right off the edge of the world. I absolutely will. I get obsessed. I stay obsessed. And I will. And my wife and I, from the moment we met, would have this argument. Now, she was a writer and she did dog rescue work. And she, we would argue about art versus altruism, which is in the book, which is in Small Furry, right? And it was literally like we were trying to figure out what is the best way to live in the world? What is the best way to do the most good in the world is art. So many people believe in art. So many people believe in altruism. And Joy, my wife, thought art was bullshit, total bullshit. She she didn't like inspire people to change. Well, it's crap. The only thing that matters is frontline altruism, hands-on altruism. And I had had the art experience, but I had not, I had done some frontline altruism work and I had run a different nonprofit. It wasn't like I was new to this stuff, but um, not on the day-to-day grind that is dog hospice work. So I, like, I said yes to settle an argument, to win a bet. I thought I was right. And I, and I couldn't prove her, I couldn't prove her wrong until I had I had done both to her satisfaction. And then my opinion counted. So like, I, let's not kid ourselves. I got in for a lot of reasons, but I really wanted to win an argument. Wait, so who won? So it's interesting because my books have had a pretty big impact, like in terms of art, you know what I mean? Like in terms of its ability to impact change in the world. So I do believe that you can really make a difference with art because I've seen it, but I also get Joy's point because hands-on altruism is a very difficult, trying, strenuous, you know, it's hard. And art is also hard and very, and and can be extremely painful. So I don't know if, if one, but I get Joy's point that there's something to be said for frontline altruism. And if you haven't done it, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I go into rooms with people, uh, millennials who love to talk about their purpose. Hi, my name's Sandra and my purpose is blah, blah, blah. And I want to punch Sandra in the face. And the reason I do is because it's like, I know you're not like spend 20 years on the front lines of something and then come back to me and talk to me about your purpose. Right. And then I'm going to have that discussion with you. But un- until that point, you're just an airhead as far as I'm concerned. Mm, that there hasn't been enough time to live in the reality of the, the the reality of the front line. I don't like virtue signaling like at all. Mm-hmm. Even though the dog work, I don't talk about it a whole lot. It's just what we do. Right. Um, I talk about all the other stuff. One of the things I love about the dog work though, is because I start most of my days by stepping in or cleaning up dog shit. Cause that's what happens if you do hospice care. Right. What I love about it, that is the humility is it doesn't matter how big I get in my head or in my life. Like when your day starts with like stepping in and cleaning up dog shit, it brings you back to the planet really fast, which I like a lot. 
Yeah, and it it would be so easy in a way to, with all of the peak performance stuff and flow and all of this really exciting stuff about mindset jails and, and how we get out of mindset, like all of this really cool stuff, it would be easy to sort of float off into the ethers and not be grounded in the visceral embodied world. And literally, as you said, stepping in dog shit, like it would have to keep you in some ways rooted in the visceral world which to me makes all of the science beautiful and useful, right? Because if it's not rooted in the visceral shit of the world, then it's just a cerebral exercise. There is a lot of super cerebral exercises that I think are really worth a damn. Like they really are. They're very, very useful. But ultimately, and I don't know if this is everybody, but ultimately I'm wired sort of like, it sounds like you, I want things practical and useful. Yes. So at the Flow Research Collective, what I, what I, I've spent my life studying the neurobiology of peak performance. And the reason I like neurobiology so much is if you want to make stuff reliable and repeatable and work for everyone, neurobiology is your friend. Personality, psychology is squishy. It's subjective. It's different in everyone. And you can't, you can't coach from it. You can't train from it or teach from it because it doesn't work. It's ineffective. But when you get to the level of neurobiology, it's shared. It's shaped by evolution. It's the same in all humans. So I like that because neurobiology turns out to be a much more practical interface. In fact, if you go back to the 90s, so Miachik sent me hi. We mentioned before, teamed up with a brilliant uh, Australian sports psychologist, Susan Jackson. And they wrote a book together called Flow and Sports, where they tried to use what we knew about flow psychologically to train it. And uh, you can read the book. They're lousy at it. Their success rate is, is, is mediocre at best, maybe sometimes, never on Thursdays, occasionally on Tuesdays, Wednesdays are out. Like it's just, it's absurd. And yet, so at the collective, we use the flow short scale, which is literally the same measurement tool that Susan Jackson and Mike developed for this book. So we use her same measurement tool and we train, we measure pre and post in our trainings. And on average, we see a 70 to 80% boost in flow. Our Kung Fu is good. We know what we're doing. We're good at it, but that's really about the biology. That's everybody's wired for this. And if you can get your biology working for you rather than against you, this is what's possible, but you want to come in neurobiologically. You don't want to come in psychologically because it's not practical. I like that you said called it squishy, right? Like it's just, it's just, it's not practical. <laughs> it's not practical. And it's like, it's, there's so much room for interpretation and misapplication and all of those things. And I cannot stand it. Coaches bug the shit out of me sometimes for this, because they figure they're usually people who figured out what worked for them. And then they're trying to teach to other people. And it's a yeah. disaster. You just, it's a disaster. Just like somebody's stop. Life up, right. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, and this is basic. I mean, this is like, Literally, things like where are you the introversion to extroversion scale? What are your risk tolerances? Those are individually different. And how you answer those questions changes everything about how I would train you in peak performance, right? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things about the way that you frame the work is it is a container for individuality and curiosity, right? It's not drink this thing, do these supplements. Like it's not that. It's not prescriptive. It is a framework that encourages you to be curious about who you are and how you work and what is possible for me. Like, I I love that. 
we could literally spend the rest of our time together drilling down on what these we terms totally mean, could. but let's not do that perhaps. But let me just give you peak performance aging in a sentence. And I want to point out a couple things about the sentence after it. So if you want to rock to you drop, you want to regularly engage in challenging, creative, and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play. And dynamic literally means requiring strength, stamina, agility, flexibility, and, and, and balance. When you put them all five together, that's dynamic. Dynamic, deliberate play in novel outdoor environments. That's peak performance aging in a single sentence. And that's 60 years of research, hundreds, if not thousands of studies, scientists, global, very well established. Now, what was not on that list? When I talk to most people about anti-aging, what the first thing they start talking about is supplements, pharmaceuticals, ice baths, et cetera, et cetera, biohacking. And one, usually when pharmaceuticals are involved, somebody's making a buck. So it's hard to get unbiased anything. The thing I want to point to you out about that sentence is None of those terms, those are not substances. That's not biohacking. There's no, it's all psychological tools that have neurobiological impact. And, and there's six years of data on this. I always tell people, if you talk to them about like the stuff going on in the biohacking community and, you know, this supplement and that supplement, I'm like, guys, that's, you're at the cutting edge of peak performance aging. And historically in regenerative medicine, what we've learned, oh, and I, this is another field I've worked in and around for 30 years. 10% of regenerative medicine tends to hold out and be true over time. And the other 90% gets thrown out. So like all the cutting edge stuff that people are doing historically, what we know is 10% of it's real and 90% of it's fake. Everything I just listed, there's 60 years of data saying this is really, really real. And some of it, like, let me give you a simple example, a positive mindset towards aging. I am excited about the second half of my life. And I think it's filled with interesting possibilities. We have 60 years of data showing that a positive mindset toward aging will add eight years, healthy years to your life. If you have a negative mindset towards aging or inverted are exposed to negative stereotypes around aging, the most common stereotype in the world, this is Becca Levy's work at Yale. She found that by the time you're 60, if, you, if you're exposed to negative stereotypes around aging or have a shitty mindset towards aging in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, by the time you're 60 years old, you exhibit 30% greater memory decline than people without that mindset. So the benefit is eight extra years. The detriment is a 30% greater memory decline. This is what's this is where this is what's possible. This is what we know is possible versus, you know roll the dice on a bunch of other stuff. And I'm not saying I run all the experiments with all the other stuff. I do, but it's experimental and I'm just checking it out and I'm learning and I'm not expecting anything because I know I'm playing on the cutting edge and I'm just data gathering. And in 20 years, maybe I'll, I'll know something real, right? But like the stuff I, I do to, for, for peak performance aging, those are different things. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto O'Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Before we get back to my conversation with Stephen Kotler, I want to talk with you about peak performance in working with grieving people. I mean, peak performance here might be a stretch, but look, working with grief is hard and the ways we've been trained to do it usually make things worse. If you are a therapist or a nurse or an educator, or you work in end of life issues, looking at you, funeral directors and hospice folks, when you work with humans, grief is always in the room, whether it is outwardly spoken of or not. If you want to know how to be truly helpful to people grieving any kind of loss, let me help you. Spots are still available in my six-month grief care intensive training. It's designed for people in the healing professions, but you don't have to be a therapist to join. This session begins on September 4th, 2023. All of the information is at the registration link in the show notes to this episode, and you can also find it in my Instagram bio at Refuge in Grief. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Stephen Cutler. There's so much that I want to get into, and we don't have time for all of the things. So I'm I'm like actively trying to sort through my brain of preferred topics to find which one. And I, I think I want to go with, you know, I was listening to you on some other podcasts. And one of the things that I like put in bold in my notes was 
you know, all of this stuff about strength and stamina and agility and balance and flexibility, dynamic movement, all of this stuff, like before we even get there, your two foundations were social connection and deliberate play, which I feel like if there's a sub-thread through a lot of the conversations that I've had over the last couple of months, and we've talked to Chase Jarvis, and we've talked to Chip Conley, you know, a couple of people talking about aging and Yeah, you've and talked, all, you talked and a bunch of my like, friends, and Chip's been working on this topic for a while. Yeah, that's fun. For a long time, yeah. right? But there's, there is this social connection and deliberate play. You would never think that play is like something that is scientifically valid and necessary for our survival, right? I was talking to Baratunde Thurston earlier this season, and we were talking about how difficult it is to feel safe enough to play with other adults. So there's just all of this really interesting stuff about social connections, social bonds, the willingness to take risks and to be playful together, and that that really are the, the those are the preconditions to flow and performance aging. Am I on there? You are. So peak performance flow is foundational to peak performance aging. Let's do this first and then I'll tie play. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it'll be okay. easier. Okay. So when we say flow is fundamental to peak performance aging, what are we talking about? There's a couple of things. One, there are nine known causes of aging biologically. They all have one thing in common, which is stress and inflammation. So anything that fights stress and inflammation is an anti-aging tool. When we drop into flow, Stress hormones are flushed out of our system and replaced by positive feel-good neurochemistry. So anti-aging for starters. Two, flow underpins, well-being, life satisfaction, mastery, purpose, all these things that really impact the quality of our later years. Three, flow produces a sense of mastery because we're always pushing our skills and in learning and flow. And control, that's one of the core characteristics of the flow state, right? The phenomenal characteristic of flow is the sense of control, peak performance on the inside. And when we experience those feelings, it boosts the production of T cells, which fight diseases and natural killer cells, which target tumors and cancer and other sick cells. So flow has huge anti-aging benefits all tied up in there. So getting into flow really matters over time. Play is fantastic because there's a lot of built-in flow triggers. There's a lot of stuff that uh, will block flow that isn't present in play. One of the biggest things about play that's so important from a peak performance aging standpoint is, so if you want to, lifelong learning matters because if you want to prevent cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, dementia, the two things that matter most are mastery and wisdom both mastery and wisdom, when we learn new skills, think of wisdom as emotional intelligence writ large and mastery as like skills writ large, right? The both of them produce very diverse networks across the prefrontal cortex that are impervious to cognitive decline. And so this is like backup for the brain. And flow tends to be a signal of mastery. That's one of the things the state kind of signifies is, oh, I've learned all these skills and now they've come together in this new way. So there's an argument from an evolutionary perspective that that's where flow came from. One of the reasons is because we needed a signal for mastery. All this is sort of besides the point, but learning in play, first of all, it's so much easier to learn. But second of all, when we, we learn normally, you get a little bit of dopamine and that's about it. When we play, you get a little bit of dopamine and you get endorphins. 
So an totally additional feel-good neurochemical. The more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance it'll move from short-term holding to long-term storage. So you get this huge neurochemical dump when we play, and we it tends to augment and massively improve learning. But there's also about 11 different kind of nervous system benefits to play and psychological, but we could go on and on and on and on and on. The most important thing about play, and this is the coolest thing, is one of the reasons that they don't believe older adults can onboard difficult skills like parse game, right, is because we've got a quote unquote, a motor learning window we heard about that slams shut at the end of childhood or young adulthood. We've all heard this. Don't become a ballerina if you haven't learned by the time you're 18. Don't become a gymnast if you haven't learned by the time you're 22, whatever. Park, park skier. Don't become a park skier if you haven't learned by the age 30. It's all because of this motor learning window. And it turns out like a lot of things in, in peak performance aging, sort of true. Sort of true. There's a motor learning window. There's certain things that, that do shut down but as a general, what changes is not the motor learning window. It's how we learn. Kids learn by playing. When you play, there's no self-consciousness. There's no wrong. There's no shame. There's no blah, 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 blah. And so a lot of stuff back that blocks flow can't show up when you're playing. So play tends to produce a lot of flow for all those reasons. It tends to amplify learning. And if we actually go back to a deliberate play approach to learning, we sort of reopen, not 100%, but we can wedge it open pretty far, same motor learning window. And we get these endorphins to go along with our dopamine, good chance that things that happen in play, we're going to remember for later. I love a good scientific explanation of the benefits of play because play is just, I think we also get into that binary of like, the world is too serious to be playful or like the world is frivolous. I don't need to care about anything. I'm just going to go play like all these binary crappy things. Right. And, and so much of what you talk about and how you talk about it is like, there is a vast middle ground here that has so much opportunity and so much joy and so much goodness. And it's that orientation of play and curiosity and finding those places where we get to mess around with life and see what's possible backed up by science. So I want to add just one one more circle into our overlapping Venn diagram here. We've been talking a lot about peak performance and flow and performance aging and all of these things. We talked a little bit about end-of-life care and hospice and dog rescue. One of the favorite things in NAR country for me because of who I am, so towards the end of the book, you write about watching the wildfire reach your ski resort in Tahoe, and you wrote, all of the peak performance training in the world couldn't stop me from sobbing like a baby. And I'm just reading that and I'm like, okay, we always know that I'm gonna cry at some point during an episode, but there was so much in that for me. A lot of your work sort of off, off of the books and off of the stage is in dog hospice, but it's also in facing the environmental crisis. And I wonder, We've brought in three big things that for a lot of people like that would be the entire focus of one episode is like just this piece or just this piece or just this piece. You're clearly a person who synthesizes a lot of complexity all of the time at rapid speed. But is there a through line for you just in those three things? Yeah. So let me just answer this question very simply. I always tell this to people. So People think of, look at my flow work and they all, I get, I get all these crazy comments like, oh my God, you're doing such good in the world and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Thank you. That, all that stuff and, and, and whatever on it, because I started the flow work 
it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's completely selfish. I wanted more flow for myself, for my friends. And I like the puzzle of like the intellectual puzzle of the neurobiology of decoding this hard thing. Flow is my altruism is about making the world a better place for animals. So if you want a through line in my life, how to make the world a better place for animals is, is, is the central through line. I train people in flow. People want peak performance. They come to me because they want to be more productive at work. Fine. I'll take the trade because on the other side of flow, empathy increases, ecological awareness increases, and cross-species altruism increase and wisdom increase. So you can have all the peak performance in the world, right? You want to be more productive at work. Most people, like honest to God, like they want to take my stuff and use it to like make better widgets or more widgets in the world. And honestly, like I could give a fuck. Right. Like if that's what you want to do with this. So, OK, cool. I'm not going to stop you, but I'm not interested in your widget making ways. That's not really my thing. What I want is you're going to be more empathetic and altruistic and care more about plants and animals and ecosystems on the other side of a flow state. And that's what I care about. It's totally like I'm in it for the animals and I'm willing to train you and flow because I think it's going to make the world a better place for animals. And right or wrong. That's sort of how I approach it. And, it, and, it, and it's sneaky, but like I've tried to go at environmental stuff head on for 30 years. I've All you do is get your ass handed to you. To you. I mean, even the dog work, people are like, oh my God, you've helped 700 dogs. That's so amazing. No, it's not. We kill 20 million dogs a year in America. That's what we euthanize. 10 to 12 during COVID, it was 20 million a year. You know, good years is down to 8 million. Me and my wife have given up our lives I literally can count on both hands the times I've been out to dinner since I've been married in 18 years because of the dog work, right? There's enormous amounts of sacrifice in it and we haven't done it. We haven't made a dent. We didn't even dent October, right? If it's 20 million dogs a year and we save 700, like with 20 years of work, we didn't even, we didn't even make a dent in a month. So I don't know, but you push the rock uphill because that's what you do. Right. And, I, and I've always said this, like this, this, this is from Last Tango Cyrus is where I wrote the line, but it's really important to me, which is all you can do is your inch. Like, and that's all it's going to be in the end. Like, even if you think back, think about people who, you know, when you and I grew up, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, like, right, like these were huge, legendary people who had changed the world in, in ways that, and go ask 50% of Gen Z, who Gandhi was, and they don't know. They don't know. Martin Luther King, maybe, maybe, maybe. Right. They might know the names, day, but they don't know the reality. Right? But they yeah. don't know who any of these people are. And my point is, like, even 50 years later after Gandhi, this guy that, like, literally was worshipped globally, and most people don't even remember, like, all we get is our inch. All you can do is your inch. It doesn't, like, maybe maybe there are a handful of people in history who did more more than an inch, but, like, they didn't know it ahead of time. And so I like, I, I tend to be very humble about it, but like, I think you got to sort of do the work. So I don't know. The animals tend to be at the center of most things that I do. I love that we not only brought the Venn diagram together, but that the center of that is care for other beings, right? Empathy and relatedness and respect and stop being assholes. <laughs> right? Like, I feel like that if you had to look th for the through line of my life, it would be like everything I do is to make people stop being jerks and making things worse and just be awesome. I think that's all of it. Now, I 
end every conversation asking about hope. So I'm going to ask you the same question, although I think that we just covered it in what you just said. But I'll ask you anyway, knowing what you know and living what you live, what does hope look like for you at this time? So this is a whole other kettle of fish because a lot of my work has been on technology and the ability to use technology to solve global grand challenges, which uh, I didn't think written six books about. And I stand by what Peter Diamandis and myself said in abundance, which is because of exponentially accelerating technology for the first time in history, we as human beings have the power to solve all our grand challenges. There's nothing. We're up at poverty, energy, scarcity, water shortages. We can solve these problems. We have, we actually have the technology at this point. There's a willpower issue, but when it comes to like, can we actually solve the problems that are that are in front of us? Yeah, actually, we we can. So I'm incredibly hopeful as far as like, is, is it within our ability? But I've said forever, this is also the work on flow that like, if we're going to meet these grand challenges, it's going to require the largest cooperative effort in history. And that's, it's all of us working together at our best. So in flow, like never before. We have the tools, but like hope is hope is about the collaborative effort. So uh, there's a lot. I mean, we we know about flow technology at this point. Like we peak performance at a level that's never been available before, and we have the most potent technology in the history of the world at our fingertips. So these are these are this is these are, this is amazing. This is astounding. There's a ton of reason for hope, but you know, as as you pointed out, we got to get out of our own way. I love that the answer for hope here is like collaborative effort using the tools and technology that are available to us and that peak performance and flow are in the service of a collaborative effort towards goodness. So I spent my career, right, all of it, like if there's a central through line, it's tracking down those moments in time when the impossible become possible, right? Mm. That really was the center of the work I did, including a small furry prayer because like people work on the front lines of animal altruism. It's one of the most impossible jobs in the history of the world, right? The most impressive people to me are people like Patricia Wright is a good friend of mine. Patricia Wright built Ramanafana National Park in Madagascar, Right. And I love Pat, but Pat literally like has been like trying to keep lemurs alive almost single-handedly, you know what I mean, uh, in Madagascar, which is not a particularly sane place governed by the rule of law or anything else like like. And I, I look at that stuff and I'm like, oh my God, you want to talk about an impossible challenge? I would go nuts in a month. And she's done it for 50 years. So, but all of it is about like these, these impossible challenges and, and always, you should always see the same thing. It's always people harnessing, accelerating technology and people extending human capability. Whenever the impossible becomes possible, it's those two things coming together always. Um, so you tend to see people in flow, but you always tend to, you, there's some kind of technological thing underneath there. When you put those things together, you tend to see the impossible become possible. So they seem very, very far apart, but they come together in a really cool, hopeful, hopeful place. All right. I want to be mindful of our time here. So I'm going to put so many things in the show notes. And hopefully people will go and find you and find more. Um, I'm going to put some of your environmental stuff in the show notes so people can look there. But is there somewhere 
that you want people to go looking for you or anything else you want people to know before we close up? Well, I'm an introvert, so please don't come looking for me. Um, please don't. But if you want to find me online, <laughs> at Stephen Kotler is, is me on social, stephenkotler.com is my website, theflowresearchcollective.com is, is the Flow Research Collective. So if you're interested in flow, anything peak performance, that's where to go. If you're interested in me, stephenkotler.com. Want to learn more about NAR Country, there's a website for the book, narcountry.com. Forest and Fire Initiative. The Forest and Fire Initiative is parked sideways because there were five things that we wanted to do two totally fell apart and three got a con like the, somebody else built the fun while i was trying to start it somebody yeah, else did me do it we wanted to get the x prize the wildfire x prize funded it got funded so like a bunch of that stuff got done and moved elsewhere and some of it um got it we don't know how we, i still don't know how to solve it i by the way the wildfire is the single most heartbreaking thing i've I, I thought I knew for heartbreaking. No, getting into mm. wildfire was um, truly the one of the most heartbreaking things um, ever. I like you want to talk about banging your head against a wall. So yeah, we we parked the forest fire collective by the sideline because the of the five there was a, it was a five prong platform. Actually, three of the things got done. One of them got turned upside down in such a significant way that we still haven't been able to come back from it. Uh, it's a Nevada. It's a no, it was a Nevada environmental problem that like it's mm. a mess. Stay tuned for that one. Yeah, that one's parked by the sideline for a, I'm licking my wounds, and I'll be back in a year. On, something new on that one. We will keep watching for the intersection of peak performance and environmental work, and I'm sure it will happen soon. Okay, thank you so much for being here, everybody. Stay tuned for your questions to carry with you. We will be right back. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. 
With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. We covered a lot today. We jumped from the internal to the external. We went from the global view, then back to the intimate view. So there is a lot here. This conversation left me with some questions about what my own flow states are and how in touch with them or out of touch with them I am. It also made me wonder what peak performance within limits might look like for me at this point in my life. I also really like the way Stephen operationalized his grief, like he's so familiar with the devastation that each new death brings, it's become predictable. Not easy, that's not what we were talking about, right? But like predictable. And in being predictable, he knows what he needs and the people around him know it too. These practices of peak performance might seem irrelevant to things like grief and loss, but here they are, right in the mess with everything else. Just because we can't fix grief itself doesn't mean there aren't measurable, tangible, effective ways to live inside it. I think that's really cool. All right, how about you? What stuck with you in this conversation? Everybody's going to take something different from the show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, let me know. Tag at Refuge and Grief on all the social platforms so I can hear how this conversation affected you. You can also leave a review of this show or this episode so I know what you're thinking. I love reviews. Follow the show at It's OK Pod on TikTok and Refuge and Grief everywhere else to see video clips from the show. Use the hashtag It's OK Pod on all the platforms so not only I can find you, but others can too. None of us are entirely OK, and it's time we start talking about that together. Yeah? It's OK that you're not OK. You're in good company. That is it for this week. Remember to subscribe to the show, leave a review for the show. Not only do I love them, but it makes it easier for other people to find, right? Like if they hear, hey, this is awesome, then they're more likely to listen. And the whole point here is that we want more people having interesting conversations about difficult things together. All right. Coming up next week, author Tembe Locke on Love, Loss, Food, and Hollywood. Follow the show on your favorite platforms so you don't miss an episode. Want more on these topics? Look, grief is everywhere. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief. 
learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or simplistic, dismissive statements is an important skill for everyone. Get help to have those conversations with trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, plus the guided journal for grief at megandevine.co. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, post-production and editing by Houston Tilly. Our intern this season is Hannah Goldman. Music provided by Wave Crush and background noise provided by me fidgeting in a slightly squeaky chair because I have had too much coffee. <laughs> I will say that very often when I meet somebody with a with a similarly fast brain and multiple different threads that all need to overlap, it comes out as disorganized chaos, and I don't find that with you. There's a lot in there and a lot to track, but sometimes it's just like, Ooh. I tend to tie things together if I can, because I can't. Mm-hmm. I've seen the, the, the if you don't, it looks like narcissism on parade. Yes, right? exactly. That's what it looks like. If you don't tie it together, you're like, well, the host had fun and the other guy had fun, but we it wasn't useful at all. It wasn't practical mm-hmm. and it's just ego yep. on display. So um, I do try to tie it, yeah. tie it up a little bit. Um, yeah. It's also all the same thing for me. It's all mm. of a thing, right? I mean, I don't separate out the parts of my life. I'm sure you don't separate out the, you know what I mean? The parts of your life. It's it all, it ultimately all blends together. And the advantage, I one of the great things about getting older is formally compartmentalized stuff tends to, you, you bleed together, right? There's the, the, those wall that it, it, you, you tend to, to come together. Um, and I and I like that. That's one of the fun things about getting older. You get to be more complete or whole or whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. Dissolution of boundaries in a good way. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.